Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. This episode was a suggestion by Greg, who is a listener, but also a friend of the show. Uh, If you've been to any of our live shows and you've seen volunteers from headcount.org there registering voters or offering election info, those volunteers are there thanks in no small part to Greg. He works with headcount.org and helps get volunteers assigned to different places. He is also just a super fun and lovely person, and I love to hang out with him when I'm in New York And I miss him, so when he sent along this suggestion, I immediately wanted to do it. So thank you, Greg. Uh, This is a topic that I suspect is well-known in numerous countries in Europe, particularly, of course, Denmark, where most of it takes place. Uh, That happens at a time when it was still Denmark-Norway. We're just going to shorten it to Denmark for the sake of of convenience. Um, And this one is kind of a wild ride because it has medicine, a mad royal, uh, ambition, and an affair with a queen. So heads up that there is also some talk of a sexual nature. Uh, And we do talk about mental illness a good bit. So we are covering Denmark's King Christian VII, who ruled in the 18th century, and the physician who finagled a surprising amount of power through his relationship with the king, and that is Johann Friedrich Struensee, who basically ruled the country. But to talk about Struensee, we first have to go back several decades to talk about uh, the history of Denmark and give context to how a doctor at this period of time could gain so much power. In 1536, Denmark underwent a reformation. It made the conversion from Catholic to Protestant, and this was carried out pretty gradually. Under the new organizational structure, services were no longer performed in Latin. Instead, they were performed in Danish, And in moving away from Catholicism and the papacy, the king of Denmark was considered to be the protector of the church. In this duty, it fell to the king to also select seven bishops. Yeah, and this was kind of responsible for running the country. We've talked a lot about how religious organizations and governmental procedure are often very linked at this phase of of our history. Yeah, sometimes essentially the same thing. Yes. So this move away from Catholicism also meant that lands and property in Denmark that had been part of the Catholic Church's holdings were owned by the crown after the Reformation. So this was a very beneficial arrangement for the monarchy and the nobles. During this time, the crown didn't just automatically pass down through family lines the way you might think with a monarchy. The king was elected And the merchant class gained more power in this setup, particularly at the local level. They pretty frequently became part of the governance of their local municipalities. But while the nobles and the merchants saw significant improvement in their fortunes through all of this, the lowest classes in Denmark really saw a decline in their quality of life. Yeah, we'll talk more about that whole uh, royalty and how the crown passes down in just a sec, but... Initially, in this arrangement, Denmark as a power was strengthened, but over time, due to a series of military conflicts that went poorly, that strength ebbed. In 1563, King Frederick II initiated a war with Sweden, which lasted seven years. And when the dust had settled, the objective had not been achieved. Denmark had not taken control of Sweden, and it was in serious debt from trying to do so. Frederick II's successor was his son, Christian IV. 
And Christian IV made some strides in improving the finances and the power base of his kingdom of Denmark and Norway. As all of this was happening, the Thirty Years' War was beginning. We covered this on the episode that we did on the defenestrations of Prague. And as we mentioned in that episode, it started out mainly a matter of religious conflict. But as the war continued on, the bigger issue of the conflict became the control of Europe. And under Christian IV's rule, Denmark joined this conflict in progress in an effort to claim some of that control. This really was catastrophic, though. Loss after loss led the king to ultimately signing a treaty with the Holy Roman Empire. In 1657, Denmark once again was in conflict, this time again with Sweden. In a series of attacks and treaties that seemed to get just progressively worse for Denmark, by 1659, all of the country was occupied by Swedish forces, with the exception of Copenhagen. That city had only been held thanks to the intervention of Dutch allies. When Frederick III, the son of Christian IV, signed the Treaty of Copenhagen in 1660, Denmark ceded large chunks of its kingdom. This left the country in a really precarious situation, both externally and internally. And internally, everything changed as a result. So, leading up to 1660, Denmark's crown had been passed down through this elective monarchy, and normally the person elected was the eldest son of the deceased monarch, but as we said, it wasn't this automatic thing. And this was sort of a way to maintain the balance of power, because in accepting the duties, the newly elected monarch would sign a coronation charter, and that included stipulations that outlined the monarch's responsibilities and the limitations of their power. Yeah, so instead of just like, ta-da, you now run the country, it's like, well, you can run the country, but we have to have a contract in place first, uh, which I, I do sort of like in theory. But in the wake of that series of costly wars, the blame fell on the nobility. So the short version of what happened next is that King Frederick III's counselors put forth a proposal that would establish a hereditary monarchy and would strip away many of the advantages that the nobility had enjoyed up to that point. This moved the governing structure away from that idea of you elect me and we're entering a contract where we both have responsibilities to one where the monarch had absolute power. While the monarchy at this point was determined through the bloodline, power elsewhere came from wealth rather than lineage. As various departments were formed to oversee things like war and the treasury, the leaders of those institutions became wealthy landowners, whether they were part of the nobility or not. Additionally, the crown started selling some land to bring in money to pay off all those war debts, and the landowners who had purchased those parcels gained more power as a consequence. Taxes went up to further shore up the government finances. In 1766, the monarch who inherited the throne of Denmark was Christian VII. His father had been Frederick V, and when he died and Christian became king, the new ruler was just 16. Later that same year, then 17-year-old Christian, because he passed a birthday, married Caroline Matilda of Great Britain. That was his cousin. She was just 15 at the time. She was also, incidentally, King George III's sister. There's been a lot of discussion of Christian VII's mental health in the 250 years since he ruled. It's been theorized that he may have had schizophrenia. 
He had probably been traumatized by a tutor in his formative years. That tutor beat him, among other things, to the point that he never really recovered his mental health afterward. It's also possible that he had porphyria. That definitely ran on his mother's English side of the family. It possibly was present in his father's side as well. So there was a lot going on that would have contributed to his overall physical and mental health. Yeah, so uh, if you know that King George had some mental health issues, those were because he had porphyria. Uh, So we definitely know it was in the bloodline. And Christian VII's behavior was marked also by a significant degree of debauchery. He was known to drink heavily. He was a frequent visitor to Copenhagen's brothels. His demeanor is consistently characterized in the kindest terms as deeply unstable. But the establishment of an absolute monarchy in Denmark had never provided any clauses, and there was no parliament that might have offered a way to unseat a mentally ill monarch. Enter Johann Struensee. And we're going to talk about Struensee's early life and how he became part of the King's Circle after we first pause for a little sponsor break. Johann Friedrich Struensee was born on August 5, 1737, in Halle, Prussia, now Germany, and he was the third of seven siblings. His father was Adam Struensee, a theologian and a teacher. His mother, Maria Dorothea Karl, was from a well-positioned family. Johann's grandfather on his mother's side was a physician who had served as King Christian VI's personal doctor, as well as the monarch's son and successor, King Frederick V. When Johann was 15, he enrolled at the University of Halle, where he studied for a degree as a doctor. He did that for the next five years, graduating in December of 1757. In the remaining years of the 1750s, he was employed as the town physician in Altona, Denmark, which is now part of Germany. If you're familiar with the timeline of smallpox vaccination that we've discussed on the show before, You may be thinking that he got his medical credentials during a time when variolation was becoming more widely adopted, and that's correct. He really championed variolation when he was a young physician. He also worked to generally improve hygienic practices in his community as a means to improve the health of everyone. And as a public doctor, Struensee was called upon to treat all kinds of ailments, including mental illness. And he had some fairly important insights in that aspect of his work. For one, he thought that mental illness should be studied more thoroughly, specifically to look for physical causes. That may not sound particularly groundbreaking, but this was a time when often, if people were deemed to be mentally ill, they were kind of just locked away. Whereas he was like, can we figure out what the problem actually is? His thinking as a physician was that if you could identify a physical cause, you could potentially treat it and thus treat the mental illness. He came to recognize things like head injuries and ingestion of various substances, some of which were used medicinally, were often the cause of what had frequently been written off simply as insanity at the time. During his time as a doctor, he became acquainted with a number of Danish nobles, and it was through these connections that he met and became the traveling doctor to the king, This was a guardian role of sorts for Christian VII, and he got that role in 1768. At this point, the monarch was obviously exhibiting instability, and he was supposed to undertake a tour of several European countries as a matter of diplomacy. There was also a hope that that change of scenery might help his mental state. 
The itinerary included Germany, Holland, England, and France. And having a physician such as Struency on hand who could offer the king care, that would enable him to make this trip, everyone at least hoped. And uh, this offered Struency a case study in his work into mental illness. Uh, this is also interesting because you'll sometimes read that, like, no one was willing to admit that there was something really wrong with the king. And Struency was kind of the first person going, do you understand there's actually something wrong here? He's not just eccentric. But throughout their travels, Struency took care of the king and offered him companionship. And over time, he became a trusted ally. So much so that when Christian VII returned to Denmark in early 1769, Struency returned with him, and he was appointed the king's personal doctor. Struency was able to manage the king's shifting moods and his unpredictability in a way that no one else had been able to. So initially, this arrangement was welcomed by pretty much everyone who dealt with Christian VII. But Struency took this post for all of the opportunity it offered, and then some, as you'll hear shortly, but he also was providing both physical and mental care for Christian VII. Struency noted that the king had delusions, but he also observed that they weren't fixed. There was a lot of variety and shifting among these delusions. The king was often very agitated. Sometimes he would speak in gibberish or laugh at inappropriate times. But the doctor also recognized that trying to stop Christian VII from any of these behaviors just seemed to intensify them. There were also periods where the king was lucid and could recognize and understand the nature of the delusions that he had, but he also never disbelieved those delusions. Eventually, there was, with the agreement of the queen and the king's closest advisors, a seven-point plan drawn up to try to cure Christian of his delusions and keep him from various habits that were deemed inappropriate. This plan included things like making Christian VII always feel like everyone was dedicated to his happiness, he was a bit paranoid that otherwise was the case, and treating him in private settings just like anyone else rather than the nation's ruler. There was always someone on hand to play cards or otherwise entertain the king, and he was given written notes on affairs of state, which he preferred to verbal briefings. And while this system did seem to work for a while, eventually it stopped working, and Christian became angry at everyone involved. However, Struency's guess into what was causing Christian VII's delusions and his other issues, that was probably a little short-sighted. He believed that the problem stemmed from the king's frequent masturbation, and his writing about this issue is pretty delicate. He sort of talks around it. He refers to it with phrases like, a habit one can guess without naming it. Other accounts from the time helped to form a more certain sense of what was going on, with one of the court counselors referring to the king's, quote, debauched solitaire. While these accounts of the king's behavior are often used to paint the monarch as being really pleasure-driven, Struency just found the whole situation to be a lot more complicated. While the doctor did try to dissuade his royal patient from this habit that, like his other dissuasion attempts, did not really work, Struency made the king take cold baths. That didn't really help very much either. Struency did not believe that pleasure actually had anything to do with Christian VII's proclivities, writing, quote, This is what ruins and weakens not only his body, but also his mind, which is being suppressed by it. And as he experiences depression, apprehension, anxieties, his imagination seeks an external reason and cause him to find everything unpleasant, 
disgusting, and intolerable, and thus the source of the coolness, disgust, and even hatred that he so easily engenders toward people who approach him most frequently. I have never observed an inclination towards or a taste for sensual pleasures in the king. The habit that causes his unhappiness does not exert great attraction for him. He indulges it out of boredom and with sang-froid. According to his own assurances, things which usually yield pleasure hardly touch him and even displease him. So keep in mind with all this that 18th century Europe had some ideas about sex and masturbation. They were not remotely sex positive. It wasn't as though Struency made this connection between the king's behavior and mental illness in a vacuum. Influential medical texts of the time asserted this connection between mental illness and masturbation as well. There's evidence that Struency and the other doctors at court were really familiar with those texts. Struency was not entirely alone in caring for the king. His colleague, Just von Berger, who was the court physician, was often consulted regarding what the best course of action would be. Yeah, Struency had the most immediate, you know, hands-on care with the king, but he was talking to other doctors about the situation. So, uh, like I said, he's not, uh, like, the only person who went, I think this is the problem. Later, Struency wrote of the king, quote, I became aware of much peculiarity in his mind and character, a great guardedness and even contempt of all those who were around him, and in particular, a great deal of dissatisfaction with his situation. He harbored exaggerated ideas about various subjects, which he cherished to such a degree that he would become angry if anyone contradicted him or just expressed some doubt. He hoped to find the means with which he could indulge in all kinds of debauchery without regretting any bad consequences. In brief, he harbored several other thoughts no less extravagant, which I shall refrain from repeating in order not to become too diffuse. If I took the effort to demonstrate the fallacy and even absurdity of all this, His Majesty answered me that he was rather convinced of the veracity of these ideas, but that people hid it from him and that I could enlighten him about them if I wished. He felt that the world was completely different from how it was presented to him and that he knew secrets and mysteries about which he did not dare talk to me. Being the royal doctor was only the first office that the king gave to Struency. Next, he was made reader to their majesties and then honorary member of the state council. Next, he became maitre de requests, the master of requests or master of petitions. That was just after the king had dissolved the Council of State. Then he became cabinet secretary. This is a significant series of titles for a doctor from another country to have acquired in a very short period of time. He was given all of these titles over about a year. Struency's elevation culminated in being named Privy Cabinet Minister on July 14, 1771. But well before that, the doctor had also become romantically involved with Queen Caroline Matilda. The two began their relationship in February 1770, roughly a year after Struency arrived at court. Also in 1770, he made a bold move in a bid for power. Uh, He did away, as we said just a moment ago, with the Council of State and the Governorship of Norway. These were all signed off on by the king, but it was Struency pulling the strings. He was systematically removing any obstacles that would keep him from doing exactly as he pleased. Caroline Matilda had already provided an heir to Christian VII. That was their son, Frederick, who would eventually become Frederick VI. 
But when she gave birth to another child in July of 1771, that was a daughter named Louise Augusta, it was likely and really assumed by most of the parties at court that Johann Struency was really the father. On the day of Louise Augusta's baptism, Struency, invoking the auspices of the king, granted himself another new title and became Count von Struency. He gave the same title to his friend at court and the king's companion, Ennevold Brandt. But even before those appointments, he was making decisions that would normally be the work of somebody far, far above his station. He was passing laws for the country in line with his progressive ideals. While a lot of these reforms were ultimately good for the country, a lot of them were focused on improving the lives of the peasantry while taking away things like extravagant allowances for nobility, they were, of course, not welcomed by everyone. And many government officials felt particularly prickly about the king's doctor having managed to wield so much power and in a way that pretty negatively impacted their status. We'll talk about Struency's downfall after we take a quick break for a word from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. Andreas Peter Bernstorff, who was a state official at the time all of this was going on, wrote to his uncle about the situation with Christian VII and Struency. He pondered what there is to be done when, quote, on est obligé d'obéir un roi imbécile, when one is obliged to obey a fool king. It was clear that Bernstorff was mortified by the power that Struency had been able to amass, and he referred openly to the doctor as a criminal. All of that meddling in the government and his relationship with Queen Caroline Matilda offered Struency's detractors a way to unseat him. Rumors started to spread that Struency was not content with all that he had managed to snatch for himself and that he was planning to overthrow the king entirely, become the king himself, and marry the queen. There had been another rumor about him even before that that the doctor was trying to slowly poison the king, claiming that he was dispensing medicines. As this rumor gained some traction, Struency's medical supplies were seized and a commission investigated the situation, but nothing sinister was found. In the last months of 1771 and into early 1772, Struency's enemies at court really multiplied. On January 17, 1772, Christian VII's stepmother, the Queen Dowager Juliana Maria, Fearful that the monarchy and the country were in jeopardy, catalyzed a palace revolution. The night before that, there had been a masked ball, and Juliana, Maria, along with accomplices, took advantage of the exhausted and likely stupefied state of the king to wake him in the very early morning and force him to sign papers that called for the arrest of both Struency and Queen Caroline Matilda. Struency's allies, including Ennevold Brandt, were also arrested. The queen was taken to Kronborg Castle in Helsingor, roughly 45 kilometers away. Incidentally, that is indeed the Kronborg Castle that is the setting of Shakespeare's Hamlet. It is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Two commissions were formed to investigate Struency's supposed crimes. The members of those commissions were definitely biased. They were all people who disliked him. They had all been impacted by his governmental reformations. Their investigations were expedient, and Struency was declared guilty of usurpation of the throne and les majestes, or offenses against the king. And the trial of Struency included the following condemnation in the opening remarks. 
The king has been rendered obnoxious in the eyes of the people, and the people have been represented to his majesty as unworthy of their sovereign's affection. No one could approach the king but those who belonged to the junto of those miscreants who, under the specious pretense of being the king's friends, were his greatest enemies. Insolence, audacity, and infamy dared to approach the throne and stamped the immaculate luster of the royal house with indelible reproach. The case against Struency was largely about his being a sneak and an opportunist. The king was described in pretty glowing terms, not as somebody who had any kind of a mental illness, but as somebody who had fallen under the bad and weakening influence of Struency and his friends. The affair he was having with the queen was not included in any especially direct way, but it was definitely mentioned as follows, quote, The first step he took towards the summit of his ambition is an act so daring and dangerous that horror and indignation seizes every honest mind at the very idea thereof by the seduction of innocence and by wresting from his royal master the dearest object of his felicity. And while he was imprisoned and awaiting his fate, Struency wrote a detailed description of the king's health, which was used by his defense in their case. Uh, You have heard some excerpts from it already. But he also wrote, quote, I have decided to break the silence, convinced that people who will become acquainted with this memoir will only make proper use of it, resulting in true happiness for the king. It is this record that most of the medical scholars who debate the cause of Christian VII's mental illness use because it is very detailed. Struency wrote of Christian VII's disdain for kindness and affection. Quote, People who were considered with the most contempt and who were treated with indignation, according to him, were the happiest. And impatiently, he awaited the moment when he could inspire emotions capable of attracting such treatment for him. This is why he always nurtured a very strong inclination toward indulging all kinds of debauchery and profligacy, roaming the streets, smashing windows, taunting and even murdering the wayfarers, visiting the disreputable houses, fighting with the watchmen, associating himself with the most notoriously wicked, and carrying out everything that not only the most perverse person can imagine, duels, combats, and even battles did not appear to him less necessary to obtain his goal, and for some time he imagined that he had engaged in such things at night, and that several times he had killed five, six, or more people, but that afterwards he was given opium to lose the memory of it as he did not yet dare to know about it. So, uh, according to this, Christian even believed that he behaved morally worse than he actually did, and that he was being poisoned to erase his memories of these events. Additionally, this disdain for kindness often caused him to abuse the people who were trying to serve or care for him. Yeah, there's a a pretty long discussion that Struency wrote about how, you know, any servant was perpetually in danger, and like, if the king stumbled and you reached out your arm to him, you were going to get hit and possibly worse. Um, The king also engaged in a variety of self-harming behaviors, according to Struency. And he believed that he was not born a prince and that he had somehow been swapped to take the role. He fantasized about being dethroned so that he could be free. And he waited for the moment that was coming, he believed, when his body would transform into marble and make him all but invincible. 
He believed, according to Struency, quote, that there were six people in the world who had been born morally blind and who viewed things in nature differently or for whom those were changed to impose on them. And he believed he was one of those six. Struency struggles a bit in this account to try to make sense of some of the king's delusions. In particular, Christian had decided that there was a special group of people that he called comme ça, which just means like that in French. Struency never really came to understand exactly what these people were. He admits that he didn't understand it, saying, quote, it would be difficult to give a clear idea about it, for largely I understood nothing of it, even though I had very much studied the train of his imagination. It seems that the king believed that these people were shapeshifters and that he could identify them. And Christian was ever on the lookout for these people anytime he was in a crowd of any size, and he would point them out to Struency. At the end of his lengthy account of his experiences treating the king and the various things that he suspected might be wrong, Struency concludes that he had withheld a lot of this information out of respect to the monarch and because the queen did not want the extent of the king's problems to be known. He concluded his account with, My conscience has obliged me to reveal all that I have just explained, although I have not even permitted myself to exonerate myself with regard to various accusations in the commission's interrogation. I wish that it may generate something good for the king and for the state. The facts that I have alleged can be verified by all those with whom the king established familiar ties and by those who approached him especially." Count Brandt, in particular, is acquainted with the details of the extravagances of the king's imagination over the last six months, during which time I have refrained as much as possible from broaching this matter with his majesty. All of this information about the king is from Struency's perspective, but at the same time, most of these details have also been corroborated by separate accounts that were written by various members of the court over the years. And while this paints a picture of Struency trying to help a very troubled monarch, it was not enough to save him. Struency was sentenced to death by beheading, to be followed by being drawn and quartered. This was all carried out publicly. Brandt received the same death sentence, and that took place on April 28, 1772. By all accounts, this execution was particularly brutal. If you go looking for any pictures, uh, you will see that parts of their bodies after they had been dismembered were put on display. Uh, There's some debate about what happened after that. There are some accounts that will say that their bodies, what was left of them, were displayed for as long as two years until there was nothing but bone left. And there's a lot, there are some question marks around exactly where they were buried. Christian VII's marriage to Caroline Matilda was annulled. And after a bit of back and forth due to the tension that this whole episode created between Denmark and Britain, she was deported back to her home country. She died in May of 1775 at the age of 23. Over the period of about 13 months in which Struency effectively acted as ruler of Denmark, he enacted more than 1,000 cabinet ordinances. And many of these were, in historical view, very good policy or significant improvements, particularly when it came to human rights. 
Struency banned slave trade in Denmark's colonies. He had eliminated the practice of corvée that required peasants to work for free for their landowners for a certain number of days each year. Those were also often brutal. He also allocated land to peasants and overhauled the nation's hospital system, and he reformed criminal law with far less harsh penalties and punishments. So uh, capital punishment kind of went out the door. And on September 4th of 1770, he enacted the first ordinance in Europe that created freedom of the press. As for Christian VII, he continued on as king, but it was his stepmother, Juliana Maria, who really ran things. She rolled back most of Struency's laws, In 1784, Christian's son, Frederick VI, became Prince Regent. Christian lived until March of 1808, and he died of either a heart attack or a stroke, depending on which source you read. He lived out his final years in confinement with pretty rudimentary and often cruel care by people who didn't really work to alleviate his illness in any way. No, he was just being kind of contained and controlled at the end of his life. And despite the controversial nature of his bid for power to enact reform, Struency's legacy, and particularly his trial and execution, remain controversial. In the late 1890s, an extensive analysis of the case was written by Danish judge N. Lassen. That examination of the facts available led Lassen to determine that because the king's mental health issues were never expressly mentioned in the court proceedings, the entire argument made in 1772 that Struency had taken advantage of the monarch's condition was flawed. In perhaps trying to avoid embarrassment by mentioning the king's ailments and his mental illness issues, it would indicate that any decisions that he signed off on, whether Struency initiated them or not, and including all of the doctor's promotions, would have been valid. So that judgment of Les Majestés was incorrect. As time had gone on, the ideas that Struency was enacting into law have come to be seen in a pretty positive light. His image has been largely rehabilitated from that of this opportunistic criminal, instead becoming an enlightened thinker who kind of overstepped his bounds. Kind of a law. (laughs) Yeah, that's a mixed bag. Yeah. He had some great ideas, but whew. Yeah. Whew. I really enjoyed researching this, although it was a bit tricky because... There aren't a lot of uh, translations of primary sources for that one. Sure. Uh, and so I, I had to order some very strange reproductions of translations that were done, like, of the court case and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the the early 20th century. Or <laughs> and so I was definitely paging through a lot of um, texts that had the um, the weird spellings and the the various letter switcheroos, but it was uh, ultimately super fun. Do you have some listener mail to take us out? I have two pieces of listener mail. These are both about our Ralph McQuarrie episodes. Before we get to them, I will say, I know not everyone loved the 3D-ness of those episodes. Don't fret. That's not a permanent change. It was just part Mm -hmm. of a a network-wide kind of project we were, many of our shows were doing that week. Um, So if you didn't like it, no worries. It's just those episodes. You're good. 
Uh, so, <laughs> so I am first going to read an email from our listener, Anne, who writes, Hello, Holly and Tracy. I've been a fan of Stuff You Missed in History class for many years. I started listening at my first data entry job back in 2012, and you've been keeping me company and sane through several data entry jobs, a couple of road trips to Dragon Con, and my current job, uh, sewing aprons and masks at artifactbags.com. Check us out. We make nice stuff. Uh, I've been wanting to email you for the last year to hopefully provide some cheer with cute doggo pics and Star Wars costumes, but I am a procrastinator. When you did your two-parter on Ralph McQuarrie, I figured now was as good a time as any to send fan mail. I had heard of McQuarrie before, but never realized how extensive his work was or that his drawings were used as inspiration for Rebels. A friend of mine and I are working on Hera and Ahsoka costumes from Rebels right now, actually. Anyway, I have probably gone on too long, but keep up the excellent work. You guys are my favorite podcast. Uh, that wasn't very long at all, really. And also, you have to send us those pictures because I love me some Hera and Ahsoka. And uh, Anne sent pictures of uh, some Star Wars costumes. There's a great Mandalorian. There is a great Princess Leia. And there is a dog that she should never bring near me because I'll try to steal it. Uh, it appears to be a Shiba Inu, which is a breed that I am in love with. <laughs> <laughs> that dog is stinking cute. <laughs> um, adorable, adorable, adorable. We have another uh, another one that comes with fabulous pictures. This is from our listener Ariel, or Ariel, I'm sorry if I pronounce it the wrong way, who writes, Hello, ladies. I've enjoyed the Stuff You Missed in History Class podcast for years now, and I don't know how, but I sometimes forget how much of a Star Wars fan Holly is until the topic is stumbled upon. I've just listened to your episodes on Ralph McQuarrie and his artistic influence on Star Wars. My husband and I grew up on the original trilogy and, like Holly, remained devoted fans, which is why these episodes inspired me to share photos of our most recent Star Wars-themed acquisition. Meet Bar2D2. Bar2D2 is a custom-built bourbon barrel bar that a very good friend, who is also quite a Renaissance man, made for us. I do secretly hope it makes Holly just a little bit jealous. Well, success, because that thing is amazing. <laughs> um, it's really beautiful. Like, it has, you know, the the front has been cut so that it opens out like a door and reveals the the wonderful assortment of uh, of spirits within, but moreover, it has like a beautiful blue, I'm presuming LED inside, and it's painted in this really charming way. Uh, Ariel also sent pictures of uh, <laughs> of her creatures, so uh, her hiking partner Nikki, Sir Sid, and Lady Eowyn, so her, her pupper and cats who pose in the cutest ways I can ever imagine. Uh, thanks for the amazing podcast that makes a subject I thoroughly hated in school so much more enjoyable. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. I assure you, I am the appropriate levels of jealous of your very cool bar. Mm-hmm. Um, my only concern would be that I would never fit all of my stuff in them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an accumulator. I cannot help it. So thank you for uh, for writing to us. And if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And it is very easy to subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.